0: Who doesn't like the sound of frogs croaking on a warm spring evening? Just after a spring rain, many of us can hear this tiny animal calling to their friends and especially calling out to find a new mate. It's the kind of sound that can bring back memories to when you were kids and you could hear them along the creeks that you were exploring. This is a pretty easy animal to find in the wild. So let's find out more about these attractive subjects and to learn how we can take better photographs of them. Hi, this is Terry Vanderheiden bringing you the Nature Photography Podcast. In this episode, we'll work with Pacific chorus frogs and learn some tricks to photographing them how to find them and how to work with artificial light to create realistic scenes. The tree frog that we're listening to here is the Pacific chorus frog, also known to many as the Pacific tree frog this is considered to be one of the most plentiful amphibians on the west coast of North America. They can be found anywhere from Baja, California, all the way up to British Columbia, and as far east as Montana. While it's sometimes referred to as a tree frog, this little guy seldom ventures up trees. It'll mostly stay near the ground. While his little suction cup feet can propel this frog on just about any surface, It's in shallow creeks and ponds that are the home of choice for this guy. They can be found as either brown or green, depending on the background it's living in. One of the keys to this frog's survival is not being seen as easily. So the ability to change his own coloring is a big asset. They are notable to have a dark mass that goes from the front of their faces, through the eye and partway down the body. They have suction cup feet and big voices. When you find several of them making their telltale ribbit sound, it can almost be deafening when they all get going. Finding these frogs is pretty easy. Go looking in the early evening in the springtime, anywhere from January to June, depending on how cold it is in your area. Just go out to an area that has some shallow water, be it a pond, creek, ditch, or whatever, and sit quietly and listen. I've enlisted the help of my good friend and fellow photographer and natural history enthusiast, David Bozick. David has a fantastic website with tons of great wildlife images at bozickimagery.com. That's spelled B-O-Z-S-I-K, imagery.com. I asked him to tell us a bit about finding the Pacific chorus frog.
1: Habitat preference is uh, one of the things that you study uh, when you're going uh, after a specific species. This particular one, which is the uh, Pacific, it's now called Pacific chorus frog. It used to be called the Pacific tree frog. And um, locating the animals, once you can hear one calling, you know, a voice is really good in the springtime. Most things, most males, whether it's bird or uh, the amphibians like this, are calling. So they're easy to kind of locate basically where they are. Once you come into the, the area, the vocalizations stop. So where do I look? I look in uh, around the pond itself, and I can see the, the types of vegetation. This particular frog likes to hug in close to the, the vegetation. They don't want to be out in the open, a heron, egret, snatch it up, and um, they become their meal. So um, along the edges here, we find that there's a lot of leaf litter from this uh, winter. And what they do is they're coming out this time of the year. There's also um, a lot of, you can see there, if you looked into the water, you can see there's lots of little egg clusters. They've already been calling the last two weeks and they're laying their eggs in, just in along under the vegetation. Okay? So they climb out onto these leaves and stuff. They're partially in the water, keeps their bodies somewhat cool, but then they also get to warm up on the top side. So they're getting their sunlight as well.
0: Once you've located a Pacific chorus frog or any other frog for that matter, you're going to want to photograph it. Since these are small animals, one to two inches in length, you're going to need to get out your macro lens. This is a specialized lens that not everyone owns, but it's really worth adding to your equipment list just for how versatile it really is. Unlike your other lenses, this one lets you get really close to your subject, allowing you to focus on something that's only a few inches away from the front of your lens. There's no other lens in your bag that will allow you to photograph landscape and then be able to focus down to fill up the frame with something as small as a US quarter. The big trade-off on one of these lenses is that your depth of field can be really shallow, but there are some ways to get around that. And when I say shallow, I really mean shallow. Imagine this, you're photographing the face of a penny. That penny fills up the frame of your viewfinder. When shooting at a maximum wide open f-stop, say 2.8, you're looking at the penny, Lincoln's face could be in focus, but the background, where the words, in God we trust are, are out of focus. Just that tiny difference between the levels of the engraving will fall out of the depth of field area that's in focus. To combat this, we usually need to stop the lens down. Make the aperture smaller thereby letting less light through your lens as well. Like in most photography situations, the first thing to think about is your light. When working with macro photography situations, you already have a very shallow depth field. The first thing you can do to give yourself more coverage of what's in focus is by stopping down the lens. By this, I mean, instead of having your aperture at 2.8, you might need to go down to f16 or f22 or even further in order to do this you'll need lots of light to use a shutter speed that'll let you handhold this highly magnified shot of course your fallback is boosting the iso but i always like to save that as a last resort since i know that too high of an iso will degrade the final quality of the image while it's tempting to shoot in bright sunlight which should be normally plenty of light for this kind of work i would lean towards an overcast day where there still is a lot of light, but the light out there is much softer and not as harsh as middle of the day kind of light. If you haven't done this type of photography before, do some testing with different light conditions, but especially with subjects that aren't going to move on you. To start with, I would look for something small, like a bottle cap. This is small and about the size of a very fat Pacific chorus frog. Set that bottle cap on some leaves or on the ground or rest it on a sturdy plant. Try getting some shots of it, making sure that your depth of field covers both edges of the cap. Now get closer and take some more. You should get to the point where you fill up the frame with the bottle cap and it's all in focus. If you find your depth of field is still too shallow and you have your lens stopped all the way down, try moving back just a bit. All lenses will have a breaking point, so to speak. Even a high-end macro lens will have a limit to how close it can focus. I like to know what that distance is and learn what those limitations are. Here's how I do it. If you're listening to this podcast, you're likely into photography. Coincidentally, so am I. I'm Terry Vanderheiden, full-time professional photographer. Not only do I create photographs for a living, I do photography just for fun. In my spare time, I also teach photography classes and workshops. If you'd like to find out more about what I offer, check out my website at imagelight.com. That's spelled I-M-A-G-E-L-I-G-H-T.com. You can also find some videos I've created over on YouTube. Just search for Terry Vanderheyden or search for uh, how to use a monopod and you can find me that way. Feel free to email me if you have any questions on the topics I cover in this podcast or suggestions on how I can improve it. If you like this podcast, please give it a star rating and maybe even a quick review so others can find it easier. It would be great if you could share this podcast with other friends who might have an interest in photography. I'd really appreciate it. And thanks again for listening. All right, I'm outside my garden and I'm shooting with my Nikon D850 and a 100 millimeter macro lens. This lens is also made by Nikon. I've got a bottle cap set up resting on a leaf of a potato plant to simulate the size of a Pacific chorus frog. I've got a full overcast morning and the wind is almost non-existent. So, so just as a side note, when shooting close-up photos, the wind is not your friend. Even the slightest breeze can cause all kinds of havoc when you're trying to keep things in focus. Uh, There's enough factors going on that you don't need a breeze coming up and moving your subject around while you're trying to get a good focus with such a shallow depth of field. I've set up my camera and lens and adjusted my ISO to shoot at f45 at 1 500th of a second. The reason my shutter speed is so high is the same reason you would boost your shutter speed while shooting with longer telephoto lenses. Magnification. Magnification will magnify how much a subject is moving in your viewfinder. If you're shooting this bottle cap from say 10 feet away, you wouldn't even notice the movement of the plant leaves. However, from a few inches away, even the slightest movement will seem like the plant's moving at great speeds inside your viewfinder. So remember to keep your shutter speed high to keep your images sharp. My technique when I want full magnification is to rack my lens out as far as it'll go, and then I back it off just a small amount. That way my macro lens focus is not maxed completely out. It's close, but it's not completely to its maximum magnification. Then I slowly move the whole camera closer until my subject comes into focus. So in a sense, I'm not using the autofocus on this. I'm just basically using the manual focus and then I'm leaning in to get, as soon as it comes into focus, and I can fire. So it's almost like a rocking motion where I'm, I'm sitting here just leaning forward from the torso into the shot and shooting just, just as the edge of the subject comes into focus. I know I'm getting the maximum magnification that my lens will allow, And my aperture is given the most depth of field I can get. Okay, so after I've checked these images out on the computer where I can look at them nice and big, I've noticed a few things. Even though it seems like we have lots of light on the overcast day, I had to shoot at ISO 3200. That's pretty high and I'm starting to see some noise that's affecting the image quality. Also, I could only shoot things that were in the light. Overcast or not, I wasn't able to shoot anything that was in the shadows. As you can imagine, we don't have too much control over where we're going to find our subjects, so this is limiting. I guess I'm going to have to bring along an electronic flash unit to get the results that I want. As a professional photographer, there's one tool that I use just about every day, and no, it's not my camera. It's my computer, more specifically, Adobe Lightroom. I've been using Lightroom from the very beginning since it was introduced back in 2007. I've taught many photographers how to use Lightroom in my hands-on classes, as well as through online training. I feel this program is the best available for organizing my photographs so I can find a certain image among thousands that I've shot over the years. I especially like it for processing my raw photographic files. While many of my final images get some sort of treatment in Photoshop, all of my images are processed through Adobe Lightroom. All of them. My goal is to do as much image processing as I can in Lightroom first. This makes my workflow go so much faster. One of the things that makes my workflow faster are the preset brushes. I've created several myself that are built specifically for wildlife and nature photography. These brushes are easy to load, easy to use, and make developing your images faster and more creative. For listeners of this podcast, I'm offering a special collection of Nature Photography Lightroom Preset Brushes. You can use these to improve your wildlife photography and your landscape work. When you download my Lightroom Brushes, you will get exclusive access to instructional videos to learn how each and every brush works and when to use them. Find out more by visiting my website, imagelight.com. That's spelled I-M-A-G-E-L-I-G-H-T.com. Click on the podcast page and you can order them right there. All right, I'm back outside, this time with my flash. And this time my camera is set to a shutter speed of 1 250th of a second. The lens is set at F45 and now my ISO is down to 200. So this will give me a much cleaner image. Since I know my flash is gonna go off at least at 1 1,000th of a second, I don't have to concern myself as much with the shutter speed. It'll stop the motion even at the high magnification. I just need to make sure that it syncs up with my camera And and in my case, that is set by the manufacturer at 1 250th of a second. The strobe unit that I'm using is the Nikon SB800. They have newer models out, but this seems to work fine for this application. Here's a note about flash units. You can get many other inexpensive off-brand flash units, but if you go with a unit that is manufactured by your camera maker, then it will just be easier to use since it's paired with your camera from the get-go. Now in this case, I've set my flash on manual and set the power to half power. All right, this is working quite well. I also like to use another technique of lowering the shutter speed to bring a little more detail into the background. So instead of having the super dark background that a lot of times a flash will yield, if you lower your shutter speed, you'll start getting more ambient light taking place on the image. So when you're working with your flash and your macro lens, try lowering the shutter speed. This will allow you to brighten up that background. This technique is called dragging the shutter. So now I'm down to about a hundredth of a second, and this seems to work pretty good. It's, it's uh, the tones in the back are starting to come out in the background. Now let me go down to a sixtieth of a second. All right, that's looking pretty good. You can shoot as low as you want, but um, there will be a Breaking point where the background will look smeared because of such a slow shutter speed. Just keep in mind that the flash is controlled by your aperture or f stop, and your shutter speed controls the tone of the background. Time to go find some Pacific Chorus frogs. So now you know how to find a very popular subject in the Pacific chorus frog and you have learned how to start using your macro lens for close-up subjects. You also have dipped your toes into the fascinating world of using an electronic strobe unit with your close-up photography. One trick I like to keep in mind is to get low. You may very well be laying on the ground to photograph these animals in their environments but getting low will give the viewer an interesting and different perspective on these little guys. If you get shots of them on a plant, the shots where you're looking up at them will even be better. Now there's nothing stopping you from getting your own Pacific chorus frog photographs. So go out there and do it. Next time on the Nature Photography Podcast, we're gonna tackle the challenge of photographing the tiniest of birds the backyard hummingbird. While these delightful little creatures are easy to attract to a feeder in your backyard, they're not quite so easy to photograph. I'll give you some tips on photographing them, as well as some advanced techniques on getting great hummingbird photographs. Until next time, this is your host, Terry Vander with the Nature Photography Podcast, sponsored by ImageLight.com.